0: I am Andrea Butcher, and this is Being at Work. Being a leader is hard. So on this show, I set out to talk with experienced leaders to learn from their pivotal moments, how they led through the challenges we can all relate to but are often unheard. Today's guest encourages listeners to stare down the fear monster and to acknowledge the brutal truth. Tiffany Souter is the CEO of Element3, a full-service marketing consultancy in Indianapolis. After taking over the organization in 2006, she's transformed Element3 from a small creative shop into one of the fastest-growing marketing consultancies in the Midwest. Tiffany has been named to the Indianapolis Business Journal's 40 Under 40 and has been honored with awards like Junior Achievement's Best and Brightest and Cranert's Burton Entrepreneurship Award. Under Tiffany's leadership, the company has appeared on the Inc. 5000 six consecutive times from 2014 to 2019, claimed spots on the IBJ's Fast 25, Fastest Growing Businesses in 2014 and 2015, and won HubSpot's Agency of the Year in 2012. Outside the office, she spends time with her husband and four daughters, runs half marathons, and is practicing for the day the Food Network calls to cast her on Chopped. During our conversation today, she'll share her leadership journey and how the theme of scared, confident plays out across all aspects of her life. Check it out.
1: I think that, you know, I'll kind of skip through some of the narrative of what happened, but I think a real common theme that I have learned is that there's something incredibly powerful about being comfortable um, acknowledging the brutal truth of where you're at in life, whether it be in business, in relationships, your family, and the courage that we can find as people to sort of propel ourselves through those really muddy puddles. And that's kind of where the scared, confident language come from. Is It's very scary to really look at things as they are. But there's this confidence that comes from saying, I am not going to let the fear of what could happen or what couldn't happen hold me back from continuing to really run through it and run forward. And so mine is really a tale not necessarily of excellence but I would say of courage to continue moving through hard things. And like anything in life the more you practice it the easier it gets. And you know I think this game of life is about how do you create velocity and opportunities and the things that you're willing to take on and the problems that you get comfortable solving and you know, it's really awesome to be at, and I, this year I turned 40 and I had my fourth daughter and you start to, I think, look at life in a little different way when you have these decade chapters that move, that kind of, you know, close and begin. And so, yeah, it's, it, I think it's as much a story of of overcoming being scared and getting really comfortable in those fear moments of moving forward and not shutting down.
0: Wow. So what an incredible journey. I mean, you you just turned 40, you just had your fourth daughter, which is a whole other conversation we could have about how you're raising these incredible young women. <laughs> and you are growing a business. So how has Scared Confidence shown up in your life?
1: Yeah, I think when you look at so element three is the company that I run. I was 25 years old when um my dad, the financial partner, and me, the sweat equity partner, bought this small little company. And and kind of was ignorant enough to think that we could figure out how to turn it into an agency and something that really was a market leading. My dad is a silent financial partner. He's not in the business at all, um, but has certainly been a guide um, as I have grown as a business person. And so it's really kind of a there's three chapters. The first five years was just figuring out, like, what really is marketing? What is the agency world? I have a finance background. I didn't work at agencies before you know, I ran one. And so I just had a lot to learn. And so that first five years was really about kind of product market fit, learning a lot, asking lots of questions, being humble enough to not know the answer. Um, I think in those first five years, as I was going from 25 to 30, I had to get really comfortable. I think when you're young, you feel this responsibility to fake it, like fake, like, you know, things. And I started to realize actually my superpower was the vulnerability of being really clear that I didn't. And I started to learn really fast because I was real vulnerable to people who did know everything I didn't know. And that was a real life lesson to me. And when I go talk on college campuses, I tell people like, be vulnerable first. Don't show up like a know-it-all because people will pour into you. And when you act like you know everything, it's not actually that attractive. And so I I sort of stumbled into that vulnerability. I think it's a natural part of my personality, but then I sort of felt this sense to like put on like I knew what I was doing, especially when you're carrying around a president title at you know the age of 12 and a half, practically, which everybody knows is a farce. Like It's such a big joke. You're not a president of anything at that age. You don't know that people can see through it. So that was kind of the first five years, product market fit. And then I started to see there's a lot of agencies that are a million dollars in revenue or less, you know, like 15 people. There's a ton of them, but there's not very many big ones. And I couldn't figure out why not. And one of the things I realized was most agency owners don't come from a business background. They don't have like the financial acumen. And there's a lot of, it can be scary to be one thing instead of the freedom to be everything, you know, to a marketplace. And so we were about 15 people. And I said, you know, I think the only thing we're going to say we know how to do is we know how to do HubSpot. If you're not familiar with marketing, it's a you know marketing automation platform. It now has a CRM and it does a lot of really smart marketing stuff. And it's like the Swiss Army knife of a marketing tool. It does a lot of different things. And I was like, it's sort of hilarious. And the same thing it was same way it was hilarious for me to be 25 with a business card that said I was president of something. Like, no, you're not. You <laughs> know, but I was. But I wasn't. It's it's hilarious to imagine we're 15 or 20 people saying that we've mastered five, six, seven marketing platforms. Like they're all very complicated. They have their own data requirements. They have their own product upgrade timelines. They have their own bugs. They have their own work. Like all of them have these complexities. There's like, we're lying to ourselves into the marketplace to say that we know how to do all of them. We're just going to pick one. And so we picked HubSpot more out of luck than I would say strategically And I started having the confidence to say, if people would call me and say, hey, we'd love for you to, you know, be our marketing agency. And I'd say, hey, well, what marketing technology are are you on? And if they said something other than HubSpot, I would say, I'm sorry, we've not decided to to specialize in that, but I'm sure you can find somebody else who can. And what would oftentimes happen is they'd say, well, why are you so confident HubSpot? And, you know, how is it that you chose that? And they started to become so enamored with the fact that we had picked something to be excellent at that they wanted and they were attracted to that confidence. I think that's also a lesson in this of when you're sure in who you are, it starts to become clear who wants to be part of that and who doesn't want to be a part of that. And I think as people, we can become kind of chameleons to a fault. And I think as brands, we also can be hesitant to pick something to be excellent at because we think it leaves us more options. But really what it does is water down the core. So that's kind of chapter two. Um, We really committed to HubSpot. But again, it's not so much the decision for HubSpot, but it was to be excellent at something specific. And that created a lot of market momentum for us. We started growing like crazy. It suddenly started to expand my world and my network and start to understand the world in a little different way. And then honestly, that growth became almost the thing that killed us, um, which I think many times the story. We spent the next 3 to 5 years, you know, growing 20 to 40% year over year. I was a first time leader. I think every business is hard to scale, but in particular a human driven business like a service business, you've got training and onboarding and integrating people into teams that have to work really closely together and and it was just kind of a mess. But it's hard to say that to yourself when you're growing and the outside world is telling you that you're doing a lot of great things. And so we lost a big client. When I say big client, it was about 25% of our revenue. And that was a moment that was really I think looking back I'll say it was a god moment because it made me realize that there was a lot of infrastructure instability in the company and if we didn't get that figured out, we were going to get smoked. Like we weren't going to be around because it was we weren't as profitable as we needed to be. It was difficult to do things here. And so that was another moment where I just kind of need to face the brutal facts. I know how to grow a company, but I did not know how to run a company. And it wasn't until that moment that I really knew those are two totally different skill sets. Um, and I'd practiced the first muscle. I think we could say we got pretty good at it, at growing top line revenue, um, you know, the sales process, closing, onboarding clients, but really operationally building infrastructure where this company could scale and last was not going to happen if we didn't make some different choices. So um, that was certainly a scared, confident moment where you're like, oh crap, everything I've spent my career on is maybe going to go away if I don't make some different choices. So we made the decision after 12, 13 years of straight top line growth We took the next two years to actually go backwards on the top line. I mean, we didn't fire clients, but just, you know, projects coming to an end and slowing down our growth rate so that we could build operational infrastructure, get me out of some roles that I was clearly not suited to play in. If there's people listening, we use the EOS infrastructure, entrepreneurial operating system. Um, And it was a really life-giving experience for our company, our culture, our client satisfaction scores are higher than they've ever been. I really have nothing bad to say about that system. It has been such but it really is a big moment as an owner and a leader when you have been the thing to step aside and realize that you are solidly not the answer if anything I was probably the poison pill that if I stayed involved in the same way in the business my own natural habits and tendencies and interests were not what the company needed. And so how did I move aside and let people who had those giftings really step up and lead? And how did I create Velocity so that the people who had joined Element 3 to follow me now understood, look, it's a different playbook and it is just as important as the one we were running from, but it's different now and we have to behave in a different way if we're going to be able to build this company to be what we believe it can be.
0: So at this point, so when was this in the, in the timeline? So you, you got through Chapter 2 with HubSpot, and then this is following that, right, where you had this tremendous growth, you made the decision to slow down. So how, for how many years had you been leading the business?
1: So, yeah, so that really Chapter 3 was, you know, grow up the business so that it can be sustainable and not just this flash in the plan thing. So we started Chapter 3. About three years ago. And I I would say we're coming out. We probably have another six to twelve months. I mean, you're always building infrastructure, but next year we're we're gonna begin going back into growth mode. So I would call that really beginning the fourth chapter, which is scale with strength. So chapter one was, you know, product market fit, what business are we in? Chapter two was be something specific so that you can win a marketplace with all of that came like, whoo, congratulations. You definitely won marketplace, but you did not have infrastructure to support that. So chapter three was build that infrastructure, which meant we needed to take some steps back in revenue. And then chapter four is really scale of strength. Like, all right, we now have both the operational and growth disciplines I mean, it's a farce to say we've mastered them, but we we practice them very hard. Let's say it that way, and so now we're ready to go. We've you know we have leaders on both sides that have proven competency, and and now let's go make it happen.
0: Well, and the theme of scared confident runs across all the chapters. I love how you've woven it into each of those, and it's so interesting how this your level of awareness around the growth and how you've named it by chapter. If you could go back to those earlier days, what would you do different? Anything? I mean, I think
1: people, I I start to understand why leadership teams, at least in like the private equity space, they'll take a team that's run a company and they'll say, okay, we just bought this other company. We're going to take that same team and put them over here. And they're going to run this company. And then we're going to take that team, sell that company and put that team and put them over here. I, I just think, you know, as an entrepreneur, you have to have an odd sense of confidence that you can do anything and everything. And that is a really important skill, I think, at the beginning. But then that starts to become a blind spot. I think if I had to do something differently, it would be to understand earlier, I need an operational counterpart. And I think in a lot of ways, in the same way, I think sometimes early leaders don't know how to really value culture. I mean, you can say words, but you don't really know how to value it. I think it was like that. I mean, I'm I'm naturally wired towards top line growth. I love to sell things. I think it's super fun. And I've got marketing running through my veins. And so I just didn't really understand why all the processes and checklists and things were important. Like, I'm like, I don't think smart people will do their jobs. But that, that
0: doesn't work at scale, obviously. Well, and, that's, and that contributed to your fast growth, right? Because you were focused on top line. Like, that was your orientation. Totally. So well, of course, that's how you grew the business.
1: Jim Collins says this. Um, he, in his book Great by Choice, he ta- he talks about bullets than cannons. So he basically says businesses need to test ideas through bullet sized executions instead of launching big cannons. And he actually talks about how the most dangerous leaders are those who have had success with a cannon. And I am a cannon launcher. I love to launch. Them in. And I had some early success in launching cannons and they kind of hit target. And so you start to think, well, you launch like brave risk takers, which our culture also celebrates, are successful by launching cannons. But that is really actually how you just put yourself out of business really fast. And so that, when I read that book, I was like, oh crap. (laughs) I am a cannon launcher and I had some early success with some just. Totally blind cannons that I fired that just happened to be the right thing.
0: Bullet size versus cannon, but I can very much relate to that. Similarly, I had a mentor early in my career that told me, like Andrea, don't dump out the whole treasure chest, just a jewel at a time. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> Similar, you said I am a cannon launcher. Well, and what I'm connecting back to is in your chapter one when you talked about like being vulnerable first. Like that, for me, feels very much like, because cause you said also as an entrepreneur, you have this odd sense of confidence. It feels like this vulnerable confidence also feels very much like you're scared. You're scared, confident that you you recognize you don't know it all. You can't do it all by yourself.
1: No. And I think one of the things, too, that I learned is there's also this weird teeter totter, probably for everybody, but entrepreneurs of you need to be able to trust your own ability to solve but sometimes you just need to be able to take instruction. And like EOS is an example of that where I was like, you know what? We're not going to act like we're smarter than the book. We're literally just going to do what it says. Um, and I think too often people try to do hybrid implementations. They'll take like the Sandler sales process or EOS or pick your thing. And they'll do enough of it that it sort of helps, but not all of it. And that it takes or people do that with diets, right? They do enough of it that it sort of makes a difference, but they don't totally sell out where it could have a 10x difference. And I think knowing that's also kind of this teeter-totter of scared, confident of, like, these are these terrifying moments where, like, you can't taste food, you can't sleep. Like, what's going to happen when you realize, I don't know how much longer we can exist in our current making as a company like I had those moments and so you're terrified and so you can either put your you know fingers in your ear and ignore it you can keep perpetuating the same thing or you can just be like you know what this is a new day one and we have got to change something drastically and I'm going to commit and sell out to it and that's the confident part of like I'm terrified but I also am very confidently committed in a new direction and I'm not going to let the fear overtake my ability to be able to operate in a clear mind.
0: Oh, I I love the combination of those things, that those two, what could feel like very paradoxes, right, very different feelings and emotions can sit right next to each other. And you're better for that. You're better with both of those because it's so there's such a realness that that's refreshing that comes with that. I think we can
1: be timid in our fear. And what I mean by that is we don't allow ourselves to feel the fullness of what our body really needs to tell us. You know what I mean? Then we kind of like move into this denial place. And I it almost like is the thing that just pisses me off where I'm like, I'm so afraid, which means somewhere I missed a signal or it's my body giving me a signal that I need to look in a different direction. And I've learned to kind of sit entirely in that fear. In a way that I can see all the way to the end, and I find when I stare down the whole fear monster, and I'm like, "Well, what is the worst thing that happens? The worst thing if I don't fix this." And once I've pictured all of the worst things, and I realize at the end of it, I'm I'm likely still alive. You know, I, my husband's still there, my mom still loves me, and I probably have a roof over my head. I'm like, it's fine. It's not going to eat me. It's just scary. And then I can kind of put it to rest and put my energy towards, well, I can either cry about it or I can fix it. And I think we're timid in our fear and that we don't just look at it with our whole eyes, stare down the reality of the whole being and then decide, okay, I'm going to put that aside. And now I have to move forward and activate that fear in a productive way. And that is kind of the like other side of the coin for me is like, I'm pissed. I'm clear. And now I'm committed to a new course of action, and I'm not going to let that fear
0: control me. That's so good. That's hard, hard to do, staring down the whole fear monster. Well, and you've talked about this pivotal moment. I guess it would have been in Chapter 1 because you, you said it was like 2008, 2009, where instead of activating through the fear, you were paralyzed by it. So you've seen the impact of staring down the whole fear monster. Yeah,
1: I think we talked about that in some of the just pre-show conversation um and so just to bring listeners up to speed, we started Element 3 in like 2006 and so, you know, if you were in the workforce in 0809, the financial system collapsed, you know, everything kind of went to crap in a hurry and we did not make cuts fast enough. I was really early in my career, immature in my financial decision making, not really understanding the gravity of what was going on. And so As a company that was, I don't know, maybe $600,000 in revenue, we went into $400,000 of debt, which is, you know, out of business basically on paper. And I remember walking in my office just to voicemails of people, you know, wondering when they were going to get paid, you know, on the other end, trying to call clients to see if they were going to do anything and what was happening, where were budgets. And it was just a totally terrifying time to be in business but in particular when you're just a tiny little company and you really don't know what you're doing and I did ignore it I did not allow myself to really acknowledge what was going on and I just was like if I keep acting like things are fine then they will be but that was not the truth and I think that I look back at those years and the three four years it took me to pay back you know the debt that we took on in that period of time you know, we ended up paying every person that we owed every dollar and every sort of surcharge that we had incurred, but it took a while. And that was such an important lesson of I was, I lived in denial. I did not acknowledge the entirety of the fear. And I think that's why it's such a sort of Ebenezer moment for me. And just a big compelling part of the way that I lead now is like, we have to look at the grossest thing that can happen and act confidently in the full knowledge that that's what's happening um, so that we don't act in denial and ignore it.
0: Well, and it really equipped you to lead through this challenging season. Totally. I mean,
1: we showed up so differently. I feel so grateful for that experience 10 years ago because I do feel like it equipped us to be, to know how to stay on the offense through this Um, and even leading other people. You know, everybody is wondering What's happening? And they're looking to us as not just leaders in businesses, but parents and coaches and community leaders to help make sense of it for them. And so being able to say, here's what I don't know. Here's what I do know. Here's the information that we're taking action against. And we are evaluating it every day and we will change course if we need to. And so I think I used to believe none of us have a full set of information, but that you have to wait until you know to act um we never have that benefit as leaders to know <laughs> before we act and so how do we describe the environment help people feel comfortable even in uncertainty
0: by acknowledging it and saying here's how we're hedging and you
1: know here's how we're being
0: conservative through this all those kinds of things you've talked a couple of times you started with it and then you just you just alluded to it again just acknowledging the brutal truth and particularly you know, living in denial, you said, as, is, is, you know, in 2008, 2009, you know, you like pretending that everything was going to be okay. And how do you balance like faith and optimism and knowing things will work out with the brutal truth? I, I struggle sometimes as someone who is so positive and optimistic. It's, For me, like that can become truth when I know on a gut level, like something doesn't feel quite right. How do you discern? Like, what is truth? I think there's a few different ways. I mean, sometimes it's just gut checking
1: your own observations with people who are in and around what it is you're going through. How I have found is I'm very intuitive in the way that I'm wired naturally, but I also can be excitable intuition and being excitable can sometimes feel like the same thing in your body. (laughs) Um, And so what I have learned to do is to go explore what evidence like can I find that proves or disproves what my intuition is telling me? Or is it that I'm just being excitable in the sense of I love new ideas. I love to innovate. I love, you know what I mean? I love the extreme naturally And being excitable is not the same as your intuition telling you, you need to go explore what's really going on behind this. So I've learned with age to go find facts, whether it be financial data, whether it be, you know, employee engagement scores, whether it be talking to my executive team about the narrative they're hearing across their team or going and talking to clients or colleagues, you know, through different business groups. I've learned to interrogate my intuition. Versus just run with it because sometimes I just got excited.
0: Right. About the possibilities.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I just needed, I just was bored and needed something exciting to do. So I think that's one. I also have, my dad says this, hard is not the end. It's just hard. And I think that as humans, we can often interpret an obstacle or a difficulty as a sign You should maybe like take another course or stop, or you must be doing the wrong thing if it's hard. And that, that I have found in life to be quite a fallacy that anything, any journey usually has some really gut moments, some muddy puddles, as I call them, that you have to really wade through. And I think we, we look at that as a sign to stop. And it's, I think often not, I think it's just something that is teaching us something or testing our resolve or I think testing whether or not we really are ready for what's on the side, other side of what's coming. Usually there's some humility or some learning or some growth that you are then going to take into that victory that without that lesson, you maybe wouldn't have been able to handle what was about ready to happen.
0: Yeah. Well, and that feels like how you live your life. I mean, because you do all kinds of Hard things, right? We've we've talked today about Element Three, but also raising a family and being a wife in the midst of all that, and running half marathons and all of the things that you do. Yeah,
1: you know, I I like I don't know. I always get a little bit cringy that it's like it does sound impressive when you talk about it, but it feels (laughs) you know. I, I think that I grew up in a house. I love to feel alive. Um, and to me, that is about experiencing things that are new and relational and oftentimes difficult. Like, it just makes me feel alive. And that's a, kind of my commitment to myself, is that I'm never going to let age or circumstance or the number of kids we have or where we live or whatever, or the weather, whatever sort of external things people blame as to why their life isn't amazing, they don't have enough money, whatever it is. I'm like, I'm not going to, I'm just not going to use that as an excuse to not feel life most every day. Um, And to me, the way I feel life is by running in the cold or doing something hard or being super scared. Like I kind of love that. And so I think it's my way of playing the game of life is to just do it at a quick speed. And that's how I feel like, okay, I'm really experiencing this gift that is a day.
0: Well, and it's in, I mean, you talked earlier about loving the extremes. It's probably in those extremes where you can feel that running in the cold, doing the hard things. Yeah. It's super silly. I mean, it's like. It's not. (laughs) It's so so great. Well, it's, it's your uniqueness. It's what makes you special. Like loving those experiences, having those experiences makes you feel alive. Yep. That's exactly right. Well, gosh, we could go on and on. This is so good. I so appreciate you sharing your journey and your story and how this idea of scared confident has been the theme throughout it all. There's so many examples of that through our conversation. I loved your dad's quote, Hard is not the end. It's just hard. So, so clearly, he has been such an influencer in your life and starting the business with you and being an advisor for you. And you're quoting him. So all kinds of influence. If our listeners want to connect with you, Tiffany, what's the best way to do that?
1: Yeah, the best way is to find me on LinkedIn, just Tiffany Sauder, S-A-U-D-E-R. That's primarily where I keep um, people updated on what I'm doing. And we are um, doing some exciting new things at Element 3. So connect with me
0: and we'll certainly keep you updated. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast to never miss a being at work story.